Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, I want to talk about an article from the Los Angeles Times. It was a book review about a professor who's come out to say there is no such thing as free will. And here's the best paragraph I read. Before epilepsy was understood to be a neurological condition, people believed it was caused by the moon or by phlegm in the brain. They condemned seizures as evidence of witchcraft or demonic possession and killed or castrated sufferers to prevent them from passing tainted blood to a new generation. Today, we know epilepsy is a disease. By and large, it's accepted that a person who causes a fatal traffic accident while in the grip of a seizure should not be charged with murder. That's good, says Stanford University neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky. That's progress, but there's still a long way to go. After more than 40 years studying humans and other primates, Sapolsky has reached the conclusion that virtually all human behavior is as far beyond our conscious control as the convulsions of a seizure, the division of cells, or the beating of our hearts. This means accepting that a man who shoots into a crowd has no more control over his fate than the victims who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It means treating drunk drivers who barrel into pedestrians just like drivers who suffer a sudden heart attack or veer out of their lane. The world is really screwed up and made much more unfair by the fact that we reward people and punish people for things they have no control over, Sapolsky said. We've got no free will. Stop attributing stuff to us that isn't there. And Don, this book review just goes on to talk about these really interesting ideas about free will and the fact that this professor thinks it doesn't exist. What did you think about the article and these ideas? Well, many years ago, I was a minor in, I had a minor in uh, psychology, and it reminded me of a concept called reciprocal determinism, which was created by uh, Bandura, who also had the Bobo doll and was about modeling and did a lot of research there. But it talks about you choose your environment, and then your environment influences you, and then your behavior reflects the environment. And it's just this never-ending circle of how your choices interact with the uh, society and the community abroad and influence your choices even more so. So this guy just breaks down to like, you don't even have any choices. It's just your parents chose where to live and then you went to a school and you sat next to a kid and then that influenced you in every other way. And so everything is based upon what has happened, which is really not under your control. And at the same time, he breaks it down into like the microbiology of your body. So not only the external stimuli, like you just said, but the fact that you're predispositioned to behave a certain way to a stimuli. And there's absolutely millions and billions of behaviors, reactions, chemical changes in your body that are all happening all at the same time. And basically, your next action is just a combination of all of the external and then you yourself and all of it is kind of happening and you're not controlling it. To me, I really struggled with wanting to believe this is true. Meaning you couldn't believe it? It's not that I can't believe it. I just really struggled. I think I read this article three times. And I'm considering maybe even wanting to read this guy's book just to learn more about it. As I've thought more and more about it, the one thing I keep kind of coming back to is I feel like every day there's another scientific breakthrough where we understand 
the the chemistry of the brain a little bit better and why things happen or why people behave the way they do based upon brain research. And therefore, like the more I kept thinking about that, the more and more I kept thinking, well, maybe this guy's got a point. And yet the fact that maybe I have no control over my actions, it still just seems hard to grasp, I guess. Here's the thing, like we don't nearly have as much control as we think we do. If we were born in Somalia or something like that, then we would, who knows where we'd be or what we'd be doing. So I was born in the, this is deep, dark and awful, but I was born in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> and then my parents moved to Marion, Ohio, which was a shrinking, failing Rust Belt town. My dad was a professor. And then he got a job in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan. Well, my life growing up in Ann Arbor would be infinitely different than my life going to Marion, Ohio, growing up there. And then I, by happenstance, ran well at the very end of my high school career and ended up getting an opportunity to run at Michigan where I met my wife. I almost went to state. Had I not gone to state, I would have had a different wife, a different life, a different family. Like, do we really think that we're in full control of all these things? I mean, at least we have to understand that impulsive decisions made on the moment result in lifelong changes, right? I think so. I mean, you're right. When you when you look back at all of the factors of your life and how they all of a sudden brought you to where you currently are. But I think in some ways, when we only think about the external events of our past, we still want to see ourselves as the driver of the ship, right? Yes, these things all broke a certain way, but we still maybe made a choice that, that took us to the next part, if you know what I'm saying, this guy, though, seems to say, no, you're not even making those choices. Well, but you have to believe that, right? You have to believe that you're in control. Otherwise, you have no agency in your life. And then you're like, well, I'm just haphazardly going all over the place. You have to believe you're in control, even if you're not. Yeah, you're right. I, I think so. And that's what they kept saying is like, it's super important for people to believe that we're in control but the reality is we should also know that we're not in control at all. And I think that's where I kind of like struggled through it. And so I want to read another little paragraph here where he kind of explained the microbiology behind it. And he just says, if you reach out right now and pick up a pen, was even that insignificant action somehow preordained? Yes, Sapolsky says, both in the book and to the countless students who have asked the same question during his office hours. What this student experiences as a decision to grab the pen is preceded by a jumble of competing impulses beyond his or her conscious control. Maybe this peak is heightened because they skipped lunch. Maybe they're subconsciously triggered by the professor's resemblance to an irritant relative. Then look at the forces that brought them to the professor's office, feeling empowered to challenge a point. They're more likely to have had parents who themselves were college educated, more likely to hail from an individualistic culture rather than a collective one. All of those influences subtly nudge behavior in predictable ways. That's the part that I think makes a lot of sense to me. And yet I still feel like I'm grabbing the pen, Don. <laughs> But how and fast, how fast you grab the pen, how you react in any situation, it's not built on the moment. You're like, if a student says something upsetting in class and you have the option, let's just say there's two options to respond with anger and like some sort of coercive attempt to control this kid or just a chuckle and a laugh. Well, 
how do you respond? Well, you respond based upon your rest levels, your mood, but also how you've responded to similar incidents hundreds of times before and how you saw your father respond when you were a little kid or your mom. And it's not just like you're sitting there at the moment saying, I am Zach and Beal. I have agency and I will decide in this moment how I'll respond. No, you don't. You just respond. And that response is in-baked from things that have happened, dozens, thousands of things that have happened in the past. So are you all in on this then? We have no free will? Because you're making a really good case to me here. I'm not saying that I have no free will, but I believe the case. Like, okay, this guy makes a convincing argument that you're just kind of responding to various situations and based upon previous situations you've encountered and whether those things are good or bad. And I partially, I have to believe this as a parent, that we're doing everything we can as parents to foster children, not foster, but have children that create that I know how to respond to situations based upon what they've witnessed. You know, I treat my wife with respect. I treat her with kindness and she treats me that way as well. I expect my children will reflect upon that implicitly, not explicitly, implicitly when they interact with a partner that they end up with. But all of that, according to this professor, will still not be by their choice. Now, you're right. You are, I guess, modeling from stimuli yourself, because you're not choosing how to model good behavior to your children. And they are not even choosing to receive the input, but it is being embedded into them, right? And that will be possibly the model that they, they, they follow. But then as we also know, some kids don't follow the modeling of the good parenting that maybe they have. And they, they go off the rails in their life and stuff like that. Now, we traditionally say that kid has just made a series of really, really bad choices. And I, I guess that's the hard part is that person now gets to say, it's not my fault for making these poor choices. I didn't have any agency in this, right? Isn't that part of the problem with this is we just get to blame everything now and just say, it's not my fault. I don't have any control over myself. Well, I guess you could. It doesn't give you much uh, relief from that, but it does. I mean, people oftentimes make decisions they're unhappy with. We, uh, I oftentimes will, <laughs> I, I think in my job, I'm trying to pry knowledge into the kids' unwilling heads. And then at some point they realize they learned something almost at their, at their contrary to their greatest efforts to not learn things. But at the same time, I think back at my father who grew up in a fairly rough environment with a single mom and then kind of an unhappy, unhinged stepfather. And his reactions when were those that he had seen as a child, much to his chagrin. He looked back and like, oh, why'd I respond that way? Well, it wasn't his choice. He didn't want to make that choice. He just responded with anger and frustration because that's the in-baked response. And as much as he beats himself up afterwards, which he does and did, he made that response. Not by his conscious decision, but just because that's how he responds to situations with anger, conflict, and uh, and that's how he does it. And, and to this day, he's like, I wish I didn't do that. Now, I don't say that. It, it worked out fine for all of us, but it's something that he didn't want to make, but he did. I guess it's just sort of a, a topic that like, if there is no free will, then does that allow people to possibly go on to make horrific choices, even though they're not their own choices in society? Does, does everything just sort of 
you know, do people just kind of give up, right? They talk about this at the very end of the article where it's important that people have the illusion that they're making choices because all of a sudden, otherwise, like, what's the point of being around? What's the point of, uh, of trying to fulfill something? You know, they were like, look, they even quote this. They said, free will is essential to how we see ourselves. It gives us satisfaction when we actually achieve something. And it maybe gives us the feeling of shame when we fail. If all of a sudden you just believe I'm not capable of of anything, I'll just sit here and wait until uh, <laughs> it's all over. I mean, what's the point here? That that just seemed uh, kind of tough to swallow. Yeah, I get. I guess that's where I struggle with the article. Is is there a long term like, am I going to do this, and I'm going to decide to do this thing? And I remember doing a workout in high in college that was really really hard and awful. And I had about ten meters of jogging until I was going to start the run, the hard interval that was going to be awful. And I remember thinking in my head, am I going to start? Am I going to start when I hit the starting line? I don't think I am. I think this is it. And I hit the starting line and I went. And it wasn't my own decision. My body was just like, this is what you do. You don't get to choose. You just you just do this thing. And I think about that. But also at the same time, if you say to yourself, like, I'm going to take this second job. You and I have two jobs. You have three jobs, maybe four. But if we said like, all right, we're going to take the second job. Is, is that built in? Or is that like, okay, I am going to do this. I got to do this. I want to do this. I guess I'm going to do it. And is that something we contemplated? I feel like we contemplated that. That was a long-term decision. In the moment decisions, I can easily buy the argument. But these long-term pondering decisions, I'm not sure about that. Now, I like that. I really do. I, I like that difference of short versus long-term decision-making. Because, you know, I, I think everybody has certain behaviors or words that can trigger them into a state of anger or a state of sadness or joy. Think about a joke, right? And, you know, everybody's humor is a little different. But when a joke is funny, people just, they lose control and laugh, right? And I like that, what you're saying about the short-term and you're right, the long term can sometimes be a really long time as you weigh pros and cons and especially hard decisions where you look at, you know, the both the good and the bad. But I guess also I'd be in that long term decision, you're interacting with another person. You're right. I imagine you talk like I talked with my wife before I got my second job teaching online classes. And I'm sure you talk to your wife and like, this is what it looks like. Should we do this or not? Like, what, what do you think? It's so it's not it, it, the whole problem with this model is it assumes you're making the decision in a vacuum by yourself. But in, re in reality, at least you and I as married people with equitable relationships, we're talking with our spouses and maybe our kids, too. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And and I guess is is it still no, it's it's no free will. It's it's still a combination of external stimuli and and brain chemistry and uh microbiology of everybody's bodies that are just still coming together and and making a decision even though because it's moving slow enough it does seem like you have full control over it. This is where I, I wish we could talk to this guy because this is where it gets complicated with uh, bringing in multiple decision makers and taking influence from other people and, uh, you know, weighing that out. That's something that I don't buy with. And this guy d hates arguments, but gets in them all the times in cocktail parties or whatever, which makes him a tie on my list of people I want to run into at a cocktail party, but I'll never run into. 
I wish our podcast was bigger and more prestigious. Maybe we could get him on as a guest. And I, I would love for him to run through scenarios and uh, and keep it going. Because you're right. Like, he, he does seem like a shy guy that is like, well, like, this is just my conclusion. I know that everybody's going to hate it but I am just going to kind of put it out there. And I think he like lived in a tent for a really long time, like out in nature to try to escape people. Yeah. I like a tent. It's about a week. That's about my ceiling on a tent. I don't know if I'm willing to think, sit out there and do the Walden woods thing, but we probably learn a lot more about ourselves and our decision-making. You just go out there and start chopping wood because you're cold. <laughs> That's true. Here's, <laughs> here's another scenario he gives. He says, Imagine, he offers, a group of friends that goes to see a biop about an inspirational activist. One applies the next day to join the Peace Corps. One is struck by the beautiful cinematography and signs up for a filmmaking course. The rest are annoyed they didn't see a Marvel film. All of the friends were primed to respond as they did when they sat down to watch. Maybe one had heightened adrenaline for a close call with another car on the drive over. Maybe another was in a new relationship and a wash in oxytocin, the so-called love hormone. They had different levels of dopamine and serotonin in their brains, different cultural backgrounds, different sensitivities to sensory distractions in the theater. None chose how the stimulus of the film would affect them. What do you think about that, Don? I find uh, I find a lot of merit there. I think that's a solid argument. I mean, I, if it was a romantic story of the sea or flying a plane, then I would be fully taken with it. My wife would be entirely disenchanted and disinterested. I just like boats, probably because my dad likes boats, and we talked about boats when we were kids, when I was a kid, and uh, she has no interest in boats whatsoever. No, I, I I agree, and I and I think the way that that particular scenario is described helps one understand that you're right, wherever people are coming from, whenever they go to something, they're all coming with different chemical levels already in their brain based upon what's already happening in their life. I liked how they said maybe one person was in love at the moment and therefore is experiencing a different set of joy, whereas somebody else is is maybe, you know, their their heart's just been broken and they, they're at a totally different place in their life. And uh, to me, it's always, that's what makes life interesting is when one person really likes something, another person hates something. To me, that's the beginning of a conversation. But I could see where he starts to win me over a little bit with just the idea of like, well, everybody's sitting down here a little bit differently. And of course, they're going to react differently to what they see. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I know you love the opposite. You Nothing makes you happier than running into somebody that feels the opposite of you. Well, yeah, because to me, and I guess this would be, I guess I, it's not really, I, I don't get to choose it done, but inside of me, there's something, I guess it's my, uh, what's my uh, my brain level here that, that makes the dopamine, I, I guess I get the dopamine hit when somebody thinks differently than me and wants to tell me why, right? I get excited about that. <laughs> it's not my choice. If you met the mirror of you, you'd have no interesting things to talk about. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. I mean... It's it's just an interesting sort of thing. But then I was thinking more and more about it. And I don't know, I feel like every year in education, and, and this was going on when I started 20 years ago, but I feel like every year since, 
usually when a group of teachers or with principals or whomever are sitting down to discuss a student and how best to help them, usually the first things that start coming up is the student's socioeconomic background and the issues that students are having in class, particular students that they're either getting along with or not getting along with. And then we will, you know, maybe even discuss medical history if it's relevant. And all of a sudden you can start to see where like, in schools, we already are trying to take a lot of other factors into account if it's to try and help and understand the student, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and this is where <laughs> this is where this argument falls apart for me, because based upon the situation you just described, and you described it well, then why even try? <laughs> you know, if you fully believe this, then this kid's fate is sealed or coronated. We, we've done nothing. We've just put out an environment where this kid will either thrive or fail, and we can do nothing about it at all. Well, see, I thought we were quitting when we got the report from the kindergarten teacher about whether or not they were helpful and kind. Yeah, well, and they they got there. They're already helpful and kind. And then they're just kind, helpful kids rolling through life and on to great things. We should focus all our parenting on K-5. No, no, not even K-5, birth through five. That's it. I don't know, but I mean, you're you're right. And that's the cynical side. Why even try because I think there's enough educators and administrators out there who have said, because when we try, we do help kids. And we do see kids that maybe uh, are going down a wrong path eventually uh, get on a better path or start making better choices. I guess we'd like to tell ourselves that we were part of the solution. Although, I guess, as you're saying, no, we're not. This was already preordained, I guess. Well, we can provide them different stimulus. We have to change. And I think that's the, the really method, the, the idea behind those meetings is what are we going to do differently? And the kid's not going to change. We're going to change so we can help the kid by creating the situation that they can do better in. And so that's what a true accommodation is. And the kid is maybe not built to work with things the way they, they are. How do we change things to work with the kid? Because we can't expect them to change. We have to be the ones that change. And that does work. And you do find ways to work with kids that are different for every other than from every other kid. And I know in a long, in a broad, more broad scale, I might have 30 kids in the class and have a little niche conversation with each one. Maybe not every day of the week, but many times a week, like, oh, hey. Uh, dance competition, how'd it go? Like, oh, all right, it's okay. And so I'm showing interest in the kid. Now the kid feels invested because somebody's interested in them and they're going to do better. Great, whatever. Like we're all doing that. We just have to provide the different stimulus which their existing human biology will respond to. I think the part that I still struggle with though is as you just said, like, oh, I try to go around, try to engage with the kids, hopefully make a relationship, hopefully that, you know, can help the kid in some way. But then I go, but but Don, you had no free will over your choice to go have those conversations. Or I have no free will in being a part of these meetings to try to talk about kids and, and put together a plan that can be best for them. And I guess when you start like extrapolating it down, that like Nobody's in control of anything, and yet things are getting done. Then I guess that's where I just also kind of starts to break down for me. I'm like, but things are getting done, and it seems like it's because we're choosing. Is it possible that, like, I guess biology and external stimuli can align this well and this accurate and, and put people on these kind of roads to productivity? Does that make sense? 
Well, if you're the kind of guy or girl or person that gets things done and does what's asked of them and complies with requests, then you get the things done. When people ask you to do stuff, you get it done. And there's other people out there that are kind of people that ask people to do things for them. And then we're doing that. Like everybody's got their own role. They're in control. They're given a role to fill out. And then that role includes some tasks. And then there's people that respond to those tasks by getting things done. There's also people that don't get stuff done. The requests come in and they're just like, yeah, not doing that. Like, well, okay. As long as we have more of the people that get stuff done than the people that don't, I guess we stay afloat. I guess. I mean, and that was kind of the bleak thing of like, oh, no, no, no. We need to keep people believing they have choice and agency because if they don't, that's when everything goes bad. They even cited, I think, a study where they have they had people read like a paragraph about how they have no free will. And then those people were like much more likely to cheat on their next test and stuff like that because they just thought it was over. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And I, I do think if people really, everybody came to believe this, I don't think we'd have as much productivity. We'd probably have more crime and stuff like that, wouldn't we? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so, because people would just surrender to their instincts. I mean, the, the thing with crime is that crime's really low. We could steal and run stop signs all day long and probably get caught one one hundredth of the time. But we don't because we're the kind of people that follow rules because we were raised by people that followed rules because the people that didn't follow rules didn't make it this far. I don't know. Do you think this is something that is going to eventually, and if it, maybe it already has, um, reached into the legal landscapes. <laughs> and I feel like what we're going to see is possibly lawyers start to use parts of this argument, all of these arguments, to try to explain away certain behaviors in cases. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to win, but let's say 10, 20 years from now, you got a new generation of judges who've been taking microbiology classes and have been reading these sorts of uh, philosophical arguments, and maybe some of them start to buy in. Do you think we could start to see a legal precedent being set where we just say, yeah, that person couldn't control themselves. They don't have any free will. And, and a judge gives it standing and says, you're right, uh, we, we have to dismiss this case. A good question. I doubt it because we love to hold people accountable. As soon as something happens, we as humans are like, whose responsibility is that? Whose fault is that? But I mean, I I was driving to school the other day and I sneezed twice back to back on a dirt road and I almost hit a tree. If I Sorry hit the tree, is, is it my fault? I, I don't, there's no free will involved there. I just sneeze back to back time. When you sneeze, your eyes close. Like it, it's, it, is there any free will? What if I'd hit a human there? What, what would have happened? Could I go on to court and say like, oh, I sneezed. I just, I was doing my best. I just sneezed twice. I can't. You're, you're right. I mean, uh, that, that the beginning of the paragraph that I read talks about the idea that like, if you have a seizure, Nobody's going to hold that against you. People understand that's something you cannot control. Sneezing is something that you cannot control either. Yeah, and I guess there's less medical documentation of a sneeze unless I had a dashboard camera or something like that. But I mean, it is what it is. Maybe that's why people have dashboard cameras. <laughs> I would love for you to be the first Supreme Court test case and it's over <laughs> a sneeze 
bring in national sneezing experts, spend millions on on focus groups. This, this would be amazing. Well, anybody in my family will tell you I have very large sneezes. And so that it, it plays a role. It plays a role. I've had former students that that have like a unique sneezing sequence where they sneeze like six times in a row very quickly and fast. And I've just thought like you can't control that. So uh, you know, you're right. I, I, it seems like there's an interesting line to this, but I don't know. A part of me feels like we could get to a point where you could see a judge maybe go down with this sort of a ruling, and and maybe you 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 just start small in certain types of cases, and then you build up. We we would need a, a you know a real law expert to come on and actually talk about maybe where we could even start to place this. But I feel like this is possible in in a decade or two. An argument could be made. Who knows how well it'll be sitting? It depends probably on who nominated the judge. Just something else they wrote in the article. They just said, advocates for an approach to criminal activity that prioritizes preventing future harm rather than assigning blame, focuses on the causes of violent or antisocial behavior instead of fulfilling a desire for punishment. And, and I think that that's where this philosopher is ultimately coming down is he's like, if we start to look at the world like this, maybe we'll put more time into the environments that humans are living in and the external stimuli that humans are receiving. And that seems to be a large part of it. And I do appreciate that side of the argument. Yeah, what leapt to mind at that point was, I remember reading in psychology class that when the temperatures are over some degree, then there's more rapes and murders in cities. And like, okay, so that, well, that's clearly not free will. You don't make it hot. I guess you respond to the heat in different ways, but that's also probably not free will. Nobody's out there saying like, ah, it's hot. I'm going to go stab some people. Like, it's just, it, it is what it is. It's a situation. Well, there's a whole uh, channel. HGTV is all about, uh, you know, rethinking your external stimuli in your house so that you feel a certain way. Uh, lots of people talk a lot about, you know, the power of a place, the power of a room, what something looks like. Uh, all vacation commercials are all about trying to put people into some sort of a relaxing mode. And, you know, that's what people seem to want to seek out of themselves, which I guess that's kind of interesting is, What's the microbiology of people that want to seek sort of a vacation that is a calm beach, but yet they, when they get there, they're actually bored to tears and they're like, this is terrible. I don't know. Some people just don't respond well to those situations. I know there's Jay Leno hates vacations. He, he does. He sends his wife with her friends because he doesn't know what to do on a beach. He doesn't know what to do with himself. Maybe it's a restless insecurity that's bred in from a long time ago. I don't know. I'm okay on a beach. I'm a great on a vacation. I like to do stuff, but I, I just, I, I I don't know. It's something that's been decided long ago, Zach, generations ago, thousands of years ago. Do you, do you agree with his idea of, look, I bring up this argument to try to increase compassion. I want people to be able to try to understand how like an early history of trauma can rewire a brain. I want people to stop like lusting after punishment for those who do wrong. I want people to understand how brains can be impacted by things like ADHD or depression and, and how there are a lot of people out there that could be feeling certain ways that we'll just never understand because we're not in their brain. That part seems like a really noble goal to try to just increase compassion, right? 
Yes, and I, I guess I don't really get vengeance very well. I mean, I've been fortunate nothing awful's happened to me or people I cared about so much, but I don't know what punishing a person does to bring back the lost, whatever the loss is. And uh, But for some reason, that seems to be what we're very much bent on. But at the same time, I do think vengeance can be a potential solution for some. For some, I think vengeance maybe does give them what they're they're seeking biologi- biologically speaking right can't we make that argument as well i'm sure you can i've seen there's some mel gibson movies about this um i i yeah i don't know i i'm happy to not have enough experience in this area to really think much about it do you think this is an important debate that we're having i mean again i i found this article i i think it's interesting to think about i guess my question is is do you think this is an important debate and do you think a lot of people will start taking up this debate or do you think this is just going to be forgotten and, and we're all moving on to like more serious things like the things that people are controlling today? Uh, I don't think people want to think about this because it is hard to think about and it's fairly specious. But at the same time, it does lead to some really good thoughts and some uh analysis. I mean, I think we are very quick to pat on ourselves on our back for all our successes and blame others for our failures. But if we look back and see that it's history and accumulated accomplishments or experiences that are largely what led to our successes or failures, is we'd have to think a little bit more clearly on everything that we've accomplished or done. I could see where I don't know, again, I say 10, 20, 30, maybe 100 years from now, as humans continue to study the body, the brain, and how it all connects together, I wonder if this professor is going to sort of be like Galileo in that <laughs> he he understood uh, that the sun was at the center of the universe and not the earth, but everybody around him was like, no. And you know, he just kind of had to quietly just sort of have his convictions, but was unable to really convince anybody until a few hundred years later. And now it's like, well, of course, Galileo was right, right? But I just think about, you know, 20, 30 years ago, when the OJ Simpson trial was happening, people kind of laughed at the idea of DNA evidence, right? And now, like, everybody kind of understands that DNA evidence is is blood, and, and it's you, and it's and it's unique, and, and nobody really fights that anymore. And I just think about all the other things that we've now sort of like used to kind of laugh at. And now we accept as like true. I just wonder if like a hundred years from now, this could very well be maybe a a common popular belief that everybody's like, yeah, we don't free will. And and I guess I'm just curious, like, what does that look like then? I don't know. It could be uplifting or a little bit bleak if you are just realizing you're kind of sealed in your fate at an early age. I don't know. As I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about Malcolm Gladwell's new uh, series of revisionist history podcast, and he talks about gun violence, and he talks to a gun violence expert, and he says, what's the one thing we could do to prevent more gun violence? And he said, put two parents in every home. Probably there's statistics that uh, that show some sort of a positive correlation with that. Yeah, and parents and kids that are, it's almost all most of the gun violence is handguns. Most of it's low-income people. Most of it's in uh, dealing with poverty. And if you have two parents in a home, you're less likely to have crime, poverty, all these other things. And so, I mean, that's another example of like these kids or people that end up dealing with gun violence are 
largely urban and low income. And if they had two parents in the household, they'd probably be better off. But they didn't choose two parents. They have no free will there. So, and it's just, and maybe the people, the parent that abandoned the other parent is following a role model of their previous parent or grandparent. Or, you know, it seems to get pretty hopeless quickly. I mean, when I was in college, psychology 101, right? Of course, the the nature versus nurture debate. And, um, you know, more and more, I guess I, I keep going with uh, maybe nature really is uh, is taking a bigger bite out of the apple than, uh, than nurture, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I think it's a combination of both, but you know, your hardwired, uh, you know, physical makeup of yourself. And it's just kind of who you are and what you're predisposed to. I, I do think there's there's definitely a part of that. And you're right. I guess that also comes with the nature part as well. It's it's a fascinating article. It, it, I'm not, you know, the book itself looks very thick and probably maybe way <laughs> over my head. But I, I do feel like uh, there's got to be some interesting explanations and case studies that he's got in there uh, that also help explain some of this stuff. Well, maybe you'd be able to handle the book if you hadn't been uh, led down this path of short attention span and uh, phone distractions by uh, some other thing that happened many, many years before. Well, isn't isn't that interesting when you could say, like, look, like people's behavior and attention spans due to like social media, the Internet and screens have all been like shortened and therefore it's even harder to think longer term about things and once again, isn't that external stimuli shaping and, and rewiring how your brain works, which again leads kind of some credence to his argument. And whether or not you enjoy certain stimuli on your phone more than the other person. Some people must really like TikTok. Who knows? How could we decide or figure out how people respond to certain things? I'm sure we could do fMRIs or something like that, measure heart rates when people watch TikTok videos or whatever it is they're looking on their phone to determine who's enjoying that more. I'm sure some people are predisposed to like it more and be more entrenched in it. So if basically then you and I have no will over the choice that we're making, but whatever it is we do is now impacting the environment and the people that we're in. And therefore those people then continue to not make choices, but do things. But all of it seems to be based around the internal and external stimuli that, you know, basically impacts our bodies. Does this mean that like nature as a whole is either like good or bad in the sense that like, these stimuli are shaping us and forcing us to do things that we could consider are good or bad. But then there's like, seems like there's like a weird feedback loop to it, right? Like we do things, it impacts others, they do things. And it just keeps the loop just keeps going on and on and on. And it either shapes more to the negative or to the positive or can 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 they both be true? Yeah, that's what I was starting this whole thing off with, was the uh, concept of reciprocal determinism that I remember learning so many years ago. And I was like, wait, wait, I choose my actions, then my environment impacts me, and then I respond to my environment. And it's just this never-ending cycle. It makes the brain hurt for a while. <laughs> I think it does. I think it does. And um, it, it's, it's something to think about uh, often, especially when you're doing whatever. And you're like, am I choosing to do this? Or am I doing this uh, because of forces beyond my own uh, comprehension? That's for sure. Yeah. 
Well, we will post a link to this article. And uh, I, I think everybody should at least read it, consider it. And uh, Don, I, I guess um, hopefully we'll be back talking next week unless uh, the external stimuli and our microbiology uh, force us into a different direction and stuff like that. Yeah, and we recorded this on Sunday evening. And I know it was Sunday evening because I woke up Saturday morning and we were talking about recording Saturday. But then my wife had plans for the day and I went with those plans because that's the kind of guy I am. That's true. And I said, okay, because I'm fairly accepting of when other people need to change schedules and stuff like that. I guess uh, you're right. It would be hard to prove that we didn't have choice in this or that we did. It's just the leftover hour of the day that we had no control over. <laughs> oh, well, this is an interesting one. And um, hopefully others will find the uh, the article also fascinating. <laughs> Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you this week. I look forward to talking with you next week. Absolutely, Zach. Have a good one. Take care.